Today's episode of Cinema Gush is brought to you by the Berserk Button Trope. Not just for Bruce Banner anymore. This trope is for literally anyone trying to cross your line. Whether you're a chef dead set on making delicious food and promising no one will screw it up, or replace your risotto with hot dogs, just a simple push of the Berserk Button will ensure no one steps into your kitchen without permission. And if they do, may God have mercy on their soul. The Berserk Button Trope. Push it at your own personal peril. Bibbidi-bobbidi-bibbidi-bobbidi-bibbidi-bobbidi-bibbidi-bobbidi-bibbidi-bobbidi-bibbidi-bobbidi-bobbidi-bobbidi-bobbidi-bobbidi-bobb
Um, and uh, it, it caught on to such an extent as, as just sort of a fixture in my imagination that, that the following Christmas after watching this movie, I think we saw it sometime in the fall, um, my, my wife had to buy me a oh, timpano, oh my gosh. timpano pan, which that, that's oh. the name of the pasta dish. Uh, that again, we'll have to talk about this as as, as the the gushing proceeds. But uh, oh man! But it, it's it's a thing, and uh, I I highly recommend this thing to anybody who ever has a chance to eat it. I will be posting in the show notes the <laughs> binging with Babish episode in which he breaks down the timpano firm. Uh, big night and shows you exactly how to make it at home. So if you have, uh, you know, six or seven hours, this will be quite the dish. Quite so the be, dish indeed. BSF reunion, right? Bill, you're volunteering. I volunteered. <laughs> Absolutely. You can stay at my house. Great. Perfect. Volunteer tribute. Amazing. <laughs> That'll be the day. Um, but yeah, so big night takes place. I will say I, at first I really didn't know the time period. It wasn't explicitly said. It wasn't this time on screen that I can recall. But then I noticed all the older Chevys and Cadillacs. And I was like, oh, we're in the 50s. Oh, and smoking. There's no, it's not rated R for smoking. So this must be at a time when smoking was mostly okay. Mostly. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we follow these two brothers as they have a little restaurante. And uh, Bill, will let you take it from there. Um, what was the first thing that really drew you into this picture? Well, so it's, it's a number of things that really made me connect with this movie. I mean, on the one hand, as I said, it's a well-known fact that I am a foodie. Um, like going back for as, as far as I can remember, food has always been important to me, not, ge- not, not merely as a, a means of sustenance, but, but as a way of connecting with others, uh, as a way of connecting with history, connecting with tradition. Um, I, I come from a, um, a Hispanic house, a Hispanic family, and, and uh, like that, Food as a cultural thing has always been very central for me, um, but uh, <clears throat> in in this case, obviously, we're not we're not talking about uh, Mexican food. We're talking about Italian food and Italian culture, and and this is something that really connected with, with me as well. Uh, really, from uh, more recent, uh, although now not not so recent history. <laughs> um, one of my for the, for the sake of the audience here, one of my first um, professional gigs uh, was teaching as a, uh, a visiting assistant professor for the University of Dallas at their study abroad campus in Rome, which me- meant that uh, my family, family and I lived in Italy for two years, um, and we really, as far as we could, immersed ourselves in the culture, the food, uh, as a way of connecting with that culture, um, and <clears throat> a lot of the, like, mannerisms and attitudes and, uh, and, and speech patterns that you find uh, when you really get to know Italians well. Um, we, uh, we experienced our, uh, ourselves in the midst of all of this and um, coming back to the United States was jarring in a lot of ways after being abroad for, for that long um, and, and really getting used to life. Sorry for the helicopter. In, uh, <laughs> don't hear it, Brett, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but really it's getting, a good metaphor for coming back to the states. But yes, please continue. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really getting used to, to life um, in in very different kind of environment, a very different pace. So, um, like some of the things that uh, initially we had to adjust to when we got there was this very strange set of food rules that Italians have. 
um, that we're not used to in the United States. So, I mean, some, some examples of this are um, if you're going to serve pasta, that's going to come towards the beginning of the meal, and it cannot be on the same plate as your main course, your meat and your vegetable. So it, it'll come to you in a bowl, and uh, you'll eat the pasta. The bowl will be taken from you when you're done, and then they'll serve the meat and the, and the vegetable um, on the plate that's underneath this bowl. But the, the, the courses, they should never touch physically at all. Um, Boy, do I agree with that sentence. I think I could get behind this. Seriously. So, but the, the pasta is not a main course. It's more appetizer-esque. Well, it's, it's not that it's... So Italian meals also typically tend to be... You have your, your appetizer, your, your uh, aperitivo, uh, or, uh, or antipasto, sorry. Um, the aperitivo is the drink that you also have along with your, <laughs> your antipasto. Um, and then the, the first course is the, the primo piatto. Primo piatto will always be either a pasta, a risotto, or a soup. But never like a mix of those unless you're going to have a multi-multi-course meal like they serve in the big night. And of course, we'll have to talk about that later. But uh, but it'll always be one of these one of these things, but not both like pasta, risotto, or soup. That's the first course, the primo piatto. Then you get into the the secondo piatto, which is going to be a meat or a fish um, or eggs, some kind of protein, along with some kind of side or contorno. Uh, and and this will be a vegetable typically or maybe beans, something like that. Um, and then you'll have the salad at the end. Salad always comes at the end. Um, Makes sense. Prior to dessert. So it's sort of like a palate cleanser before you move into something sweet. And they have very highly developed reasons for doing it in this way. And a lot of it has to do with ideas about how do you digest the food? How do you enjoy the food? How do you um, really immerse yourself in the meal? And to an American, especially in my case, a Mexican-American, where in our cuisine, everything is mixed and jumbled together. You have, like, you've got your rice, you've got your, your meat, You've got your salsas, and you're mixing it all up together so that all the flavors blend. So it's a completely different experience from what I'm used to. Now, in addition to that, you've also got other things like um, spaghetti and meatballs, something we're used to in the United States. This is not a thing in Italy. <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs don't mix because on the one hand, the meatball, this is a, this is a, a, a second plate. This is a, a main course. Pasta is a primo piatto. This is your first course. The two don't go together on the same plate. <laughs> um, but also the, the meat and the, and the pasta, they don't blend together, which is another thing that the pasta has to blend in a way with the sauce that it's being served with. Uh, if it doesn't blend, it's not right. So another thing that's weird to Italians is that in the United States, you go to an Italian restaurant and you can order something like a spaghetti bolognese. But a spaghetti bolognese is not a thing in Italy because a meat sauce and spaghetti don't blend together. The roundness of the, of the spaghetti um, just can't hold on to and latch on to the, the, the chunkiness of the sauce. So you don't not have a spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> you don't have a spaghetti bolognese. You have a, a tagliatelle bolognese, which is that this is going to be like a fettuccine. It's, it's a flat, wider pasta that can actually hold the sauce uh, and blend with it. Um, 
Likewise, you don't have cheese on top of a seafood pasta because that's too much saltiness. And then finally, and, and perhaps most importantly of all, chicken and pasta should never ever talk to each other. They should never you be anywhere near each other. <laughs> chicken and just okay. not go what? with pasta. Yeah. It's all because of the so, okay because of the meat, and then okay, there's separate dishes. All right, I understand. All right, all right. Exactly. So yeah. So all three of us studied abroad in the same program. We all went to Italy. Mm-hmm. Not to get you two went together. I went later, mm-hmm. but I was not aware of any of these rules. In retrospect, I could see them in practice, but how did you learn this? Did somebody sit down and yell at you, or did you ask? Oh, or... <laughs> well, really, I mean, it, it was a, a process of, of trial and error, of just sort of studying the menus um, in, in Italian restaurants. Some of it was, was communicated very clearly to us um, by uh, people who'd been there for a long time who would comment on it. In other cases, we had Italian friends who... Um, uh, well, one of my colleagues was an Italian uh, from Sicily, and he had studied in, in various places uh, or worked in the United States for a while. So he was aware of what we would be used to and also how that was going to be different from what we were going to experience when we were there. And, and he was very kind in giving us a little bit of a primer <laughs> in all of this. But, yeah. I mean, again, me as an American, as a Mexican-American encountering this, it, to me it just seemed weird and I didn't like it at first. <laughs> but then I got really used to it. And I came back to the United sure. States, and I, I'm going to Italian restaurants that don't taste nearly as good as the things that I'm eating in, in Italy. And Last they've night. got weird things on the menu, like spaghetti and meatballs, cheese on on uh, <laughs> on, on everything. Uh, seafood, literally everything. Pasta. All the literally, time. Yeah, literally everything. And it, it just it was wrong and it was it was it was bad and I couldn't take it. What a, well, I've never been a huge fan of American Italian food, but watching this movie, I was reminding myself that, oh, but Italian Italian food was absolutely incredible. And mm-hmm. I just, there's such a big difference, but I was not aware of any of those things. Well, one of the courses that Bill missed and neglected, which I will kindly remind him of, is the never ending breadsticks. When does that come into mm. play? <laughs> yeah, tell us about the never-ending breadsticks. There is no such thing. Um, that, that's that's the, the important thing. Just as there is no such thing as a fettuccine Alfredo. Oh, good lord. My wife is not in the room, thank God. Because that is literally <laughs> her favorite thing ever. She's been craving it like crazy. And uh, I, I won't tell her that. But maybe and they don't come by and offer Parmesan cheese on everything? Well, Not on everything. I, with on Nick, Nick going, more! With. Yeah, more! <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes, too. Well, you sound like but, a primo, frankly. I really... Well, and So this is the thing. I really connected with the character Primo as a result of this experience. And, and I mean, a lot of what... Um, what I mean, the reason why I bring all these things up is because, again, as I said, coming back to the United States, the experience was very jarring. For me, mm-hmm. not just because of the food, but also because of some of the other things that that I really encountered in, in Italy. Things like um, the grocery stores are much smaller. Like you could fit four Italian supermarkets into your typical Safeway or Albertsons or whatever you have in whatever part of the country you're living in. And there are um, so so much fewer options as far as Mm -hmm. different kinds of products you can get. You don't have dozens upon dozens of cereals, for example. Um, You'll have a select few that you can choose from, and and, uh, 
Uh, the only exception is that there are lots of different kinds of pasta, also lots of different kinds of cookies. There's a whole mm -hmm. aisle dedicated to cookies mm -hmm. in an Italian supermarket. Um, but that's the way it should be. I mean, it I will is the say way this it too. Should be. With, it is with the, the way. <laughs> with Italian food, I was talking to Monica about this. When you go to Europe, if you have and this isn't everyone's experience, I understand, but if you have like a dairy allergy or a wheat allergy, when you go to Europe or if you go to Italy, like you just it just doesn't come into play as much. And I know that that's there's not a lot of GMOs in the wheat, mm -hmm. and they don't do a lot of crazy crap to their cows. It's really just the the way it was intended to be, as it were. And so you don't really see a lot okay. of that. Okay, all right, just saying, all right. I'm just saying. <laughs> GMOs being the greatest thing that science has accomplished in the last hundred years. Uh, nuclear is pretty good too, but I was just going to say, <laughs> just going to say, like, I know people who have celiac and when they go to overseas, they can have the pasta and the bread and it does not affect them at all. Not everyone's experience, but just, let's get back to the cookie aisle. Continue. <laughs> well, so, so the, the thing that I wanted to sort of bring up here is, is just that one of the common sayings that I, I heard among my Italian friends who were commenting on their own experiences of visiting the United States from Italy um, and going to supermarkets and seeing just boxes upon boxes of, of this cereal and that cereal or all, just all the different options, just the huge space that, that uh, a supermarket takes up, it, it, they always would say, it's too much. Which we've all seen Hurt Locker, right? Which is this this phrase is constantly is just coming out of of uh, an Italian's mouth in response to all sorts of things, um, and and in fact we hear it quite frequently from the characters in The Big Night in response to some of the things that to me would be like sort of the typical things that an Italian would say it's it's too much. But this is going to be a key to, um, again, part of the reason why I connect with this movie as somebody who's really interested in food, really interested in culture, and also really interested in philosophy. Um, because I think that what this movie accomplishes in so many different ways, and, and again, the reason why I connect with it at an intellectual as well as experiential level here is that I, it really raises <laughs> questions about... Um, contrasts and tensions between things like beauty versus pleasure, consumerism versus contemplation, purity of soul versus despair and, and sort of moral rot that really is summed up so well in those three words that are constantly pouring out of an Italian's mouth, it's too much. So I, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, this has been a long prelude, but I'm really excited to, to sort of dive into the movie and, and sort of lay out why I see these connections and why I think this movie is so great as a piece of art and also why I think it's so important. Um, so Lay it on us, man. The yeah, basic me... idea, uh, as we kind of touched upon in, in, uh, in passing <laughs> so far, uh, is that the, um, the movie is about these two brothers. Primo is the older one. Secondo is, is the younger. Um, they're Italians, Italian immigrants to the United States. I get the sense that they're in like New Jersey or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Jersey Shore, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jersey Shore um, in the 1950s. So these are, are two brothers who've, who've grown up in the midst of deprivation and war. Um, and they've come to the United States in search of opportunity. Um, they open up an Italian restaurant 
just a little tiny Italian restaurant in Jersey Shores. And it's across the street from this mega Italian-American restaurant. And the, the contrast between the two restaurants is going to become really important uh, as the movie goes along. But, but the opening scenes really is just the, the two brothers cooking in their little tiny kitchen, preparing a meal for the very few patrons that they have um, who are, are coming to the restaurant. And the, the two... That there's an American couple who are, uh, they've ordered, they're finally getting their food, that, that uh, the elder brother, Primo, he's, he's the main chef. Um, and the younger brother, Secundo, he's like the maitre d'. Um, and sometimes he does things in the kitchen as well. But they've, Primo has, has really thrown himself into crafting this meal. They bring out the food, and they, the, the patrons want to know, where's the meatball? She's ordered spaghetti. The guy's ordered spaghetti, or the, the woman's ordered the woman's ordered spaghetti, and she wants to know where's the meatball. And uh, Secondo is he's explaining that oh the meatballs don't don't go with this. They don't come with this. And and she but she's the customer. Customer's always right. He has to go back to try to secure meatballs for this woman. And and so he, he gives the order to to Primo, and Primo asks who asked for the meatballs. And it's just very evident that he is, he is annoyed. He is disturbed and perturbed, really, the depths of his soul by the fact that somebody, and he, he knows there are only so many patrons out there, he knows the orders that have come in, somebody is asking for meatballs, and he knows it's the person who's ordered the spaghetti. And he doesn't want to do it. Um, and there's this, this fight that, that goes along, this interchange between the two brothers that goes along as, as uh, Secunda's really trying to get the brothers to, to, to compromise with these very well set and established food rules that his brother is operating within and just give the customer what they want. Because, and we find this out in the, in the next scene, the restaurant is in trouble. The brothers have not a lot of money, they're not very successful because they're trying to do something that is special. Um, the, so the Secondo, he's the, the business manager basically, he's gone to the bank He's been called into the bank because they're behind on their mortgage payments, um, and they're going to lose the restaurant if they can't catch up with the payments by the end of the month. Um, so Secondo, he's he's trying to figure out how how can he kind of make up that shortfall when he he's working with his brother. His brother is not going to change the menu to accommodate American taste. He wants to bring Italy to America to an American audience and have that audience just sort of appreciate what Italy has to offer. Um, I think one great thing real quick, just in that opening sequence when, you know, Primo being, you know, prime the first and Secundo second, like the second brother, you got to get that right away. When they have that conversation about the meatballs and Secundo opens that door and just goes, it's her, you know, lets them know you really <laughs> get the feeling they've had this fight many times many before. Times. Yeah. And then they, uh, you know, Como se dice, uh, hot dog. Yes, they could start making hot dogs. That's right. Instead of just to sticking to their guns, yeah. they could start making hot dogs. Right. That and, ain't happening. And and Primo's analysis of the of the situation is also really telling of, of the attitude that he has because, like the the language that he uses here is is, um, Secondo is is sort of daring him go out, talk to her, talk to them, mm -hmm. explain, convince them, and. 
Primo sort of throws his hands up in the air, basically, and, and says, no, they're Philistines. He's not going go to he's not gonna try and, and convince them. He's not going to go deal with them face-to-face. If they're Philistines, they're not going to understand. So he's, he's just going to make them... He, he, he decide, he's he's going to make the meatballs. He's just going to be really upset about it. <laughs> uh, but what's, what's great, too, is that through that sequence, one thing that I noticed that kind of comes into play later on in the movie is that there is this... Primo really doesn't leave the kitchen kind of a thing. And it's almost like his brother's not just daring him to hold to his guns and daring him to talk to the customer, but really... Primo stays in that kitchen. That's, it's almost like a fear that he has to like go out and approach people and tell them what he really thinks. And so you kind of get that subtle mm-hmm. note there, like that this shyness. is a, a bit of a flaw there that we're, we're not going to see with Primo. He can fight with his brother, and it might be an Italian, but he's not going to go out there and approach a customer. He's not going to go out there and see somebody. Like He's just going to kind of be back behind the doors where it's safe, as it were. Yeah, definitely. And, and we, we begin in the, in the subsequent scenes to get a sense of the difference between the two brothers that – uh, Primo is much more reserved. He's much more focused upon his art, um, his culinary arts, and, and really trying to produce something there in the kitchen that's worthy of, of the effort. Um, but yeah, he doesn't want to go out into the into the world. He's not making. He is making connections, and and we see this that he brings food to people that he knows, Italian immigrants who he knows will appreciate it, and and he shares uh, grappa um, while while. Uh, uh, his his friend, uh, I think, is a barber. is is eating the food that he's prepared, and and really, this this is person who's we get the sense he's not paying um, for the mood the, the food that that uh, Primo's brought. Um, but Primo gets the satisfaction of of watching his friend appreciate something good, um, something that's well crafted and well made. Um, but this is very strikingly different from Secondo, who's the much more outgoing one, and we get the sense like this is the one who's got his head on his shoulders, because he's the one who's who's doing the, the sort of the hard hitting work of managing the restaurant, concerning himself with the finances, making sure that his brother has the platform it, upon which he can he can create his his work while also making a living. But um, and then in addition to that, it's Primo obviously has a thing for the florist. Um, I think Anne is her name or Anne, something like that. Um, but he, he doesn't talk to her. Or he doesn't talk to her about anything other than the flowers that, that he's ordering for the restaurant. Again, to make the restaurant nice, to, to bring beauty uh, into the space, which is so important um, for, for the appreciation of the food. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> Secondo has a girlfriend. Um, and uh, we find them in the next scene making out in the car um, and it's, it's obvious that she wants to go a bit further um, and uh, Secondo is saving himself um, though there's some suggestion that well, we've done other stuff before um, but he, he's insistent well this isn't a casual thing for him he wants to wait for the time the right time so we get, we get the sense that this is uh, um, a uh, quote-unquote good Italian boy who's um, who, who's abiding by certain sets of standards. And the only um, thing holding him back is the success of the restaurant because it's not the right time. He keeps coming back to that idea that it's right. not the right time. And you're like, you're, you're like exactly what you're saying. The restaurant is having trouble. So, you know, oh, just give, give me some time. Let the finances be okay. And then the business and my brother. And, and then and then I will get married, you know. So, we yeah, we right, get that right. idea. But we see also that, and she makes him say it, that the reason why he's holding back, it's about the money. 
He doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the success. And this is the thing that drives Secundo. He's driven by a desire to live the American dream, to acquire lots of success in the form of money, in the form of nice things. There's going to be a scene later on where he's he's test driving a Cadillac, and he just he's it's obvious he he wants this car. He doesn't he doesn't have the money for it, but he wants it because this is a symbol. This is a, a status symbol of his success coming out of the poverty of of um, post World War II Italy, coming to the United States. This is what he came for. Um, but the divergences between the two brothers are going to begin to become more apparent as the movie goes on. And we're going to see that in a lot of ways, although initially Primo is the one who, who sort of strikes us as, as, as he, he doesn't have his head on his shoulders. He's, he's too much of an idealist and he's, he's too, too stuck in his ways. His brother's the one who's making the, the necessary compromises to, to make them a success in the United States. We're going to begin to see it's it's not all as it appears, um, so we, we want to keep that kind of at the, the back of our minds as as we're going along. But again, Secundo he's worried about the restaurant, so he, he after this interchange with uh, his girlfriend Phyllis, he ends up uh, wandering over to the the rival Italian American restaurant. And Olive Garden, I, the, baby. That's the restaurant. Sorry. It's, it's sorry. Olive sorry. Garden. Sorry. It's Buca de Beppo. You hear your family. It's, oh, Buca de <laughs> It's, it's okay, any, something in that kind of a, uh, of, a, of an orbit. But with a little club vibe, too. Well, yeah, yeah, a little bit of club. They've got a live, uh, live singer singing your, your typical like 1950s kind of Italian-American music, that sort of Dean Martin sort of stuff. Um, Mambo Italia. I forget what the, what the song is, but, but uh, you get the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes there and he meets with the owner of the restaurant whose name is Pascal. Mm-hmm. And Pascal is this uncouth character, constantly dropping the F-bomb, um, just making these, these comments that are, are just over the top um, and just in a lot of ways really crass. Really crass character, but also really successful. Like he's got the restaurant is packed with people. He's given them what they want. But there's, I think there's a subtle hint in the in the um, in the dialogue that there's there's something up with Pascal that the movie wants us to pay attention to that sort of signals why is he successful? What is the what is this restaurant? What is what is it that he's crafting here in this place? What's the experience that he's giving to his customers, and and why is it resulted in in the the fact that he's sort of oozing wealth and oozing success in that in sort of materialistic sense. Um, his name is Pascal. At least that's what he goes by. But Pascal is not really an Italian name. If, if he were in Italy, his name would be, would be Pasquale. So there's kind of the signal here that this is an Americanized Italian. He's doing something that's, that's very different. That, that is sort of the opposite of what the two brothers are sort of set out to do when they came to the United States. They wanted to bring something pure. Pascal is bringing the customers just sort of what they want. And there's sort of a great interchange. Like one, the reason why uh, Secundo has come, come here to the sort of the rival restaurant is twofold. On the one hand, Pascal is always trying to poach Primo, because he knows this is a great chef, and he would do great work at his restaurant. 
so long as he gets sort of broken of his purity um, and his commitment to sort of the tradition of Italian cuisine and just give the customers what they want. <clears throat> that's that's we get the, the sense thing. That, I, that, Primo, that scene, man. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. that line. Sorry, that when he says, this is what I have to say to you, give to people what they want, then later you can give them what you want. Hey, and like that to me, I was like, okay, there's theming right here. Like that's that idea. Like already got, that's that struggle that, I mean, that part just really stuck out with me, but sorry, keep going, keep going. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but the, the, the reason why Secundo has come is that he's, he's asking for a loan. He wants some money that can help them to, to get to the, um, the end of the month and, and keep the restaurant, keep the mortgage. And Pascal says, no, I can't give you this kind of money. Um, he said, there's sort of this enduring offer. You can come work for me. Um, but then he gives them another, another option. And this is going to be the idea of the big night. Um, but before, I think it's before, he, he throws out this offer and, and uh, proposes the idea of a big night, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. Um, there's a, a, a line there where he's, I think he's, he's just sort of turned Secundo down. He's not going to give him the money. Um, and Secundo is just, again, using this sort of classic Italian phrase that connects with me so much. He's talking about how just everything is piling on top of him, and it's, it's too much. It's too much. And Pascal replies in this uncharacteristic way for an Italian. He, it's not sort of, yeah, it's too much. It's, he says, what is this? Too much, huh? Hey, it's never too much. It's only not enough. Bite your teeth into the ass of life. Yes. And drag it to you, hey. Um, like Truth. this. This is a, an idea that, that just sort of the opposite of, of this sort of Italian reaction to American culture that I was sort of constantly confronted with of it's too much, that there, there's too little moderation, too much focus on things and on variety and on having all sorts of different options that we, we only need a few. We need simplicity. And out of simplicity, you can create something meaningful and something beautiful and something worth having you don't need all the things in order to create something that's, that's worth having but pascal we see that he's he's not just sort of left his italian heritage behind so to speak in this in this pursuit of of worldly success he's also given up that kind of value of simplicity because it's never enough it's 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 never too much it's only not enough. He wants more, and he wants more, and he wants more. And he's encouraging the same kind of attitude in uh, Secondo. So we, we kind of have um, this almost sort of Faustian dynamic that's going on. Pascal is a sort of Mephistopheles. He's trying to he, he's trying to corrupt Secundo. He's sort of somewhere midway between the purity of Primo and the outright debauchery, you, you could say, of, of Pascal. But what I love about it as an American audience is I don't think that comes through out of the gates, right? It yeah. seems like he's the mentor that you're supposed to be trusting in this. Like, yes. He's the competitor right down the street, like way too close to be asking for a loan from this guy. Yeah, he's the but one he's, who has the success. And, and so he's the one we right. think Secondo should listen to this guy because he's the one who can show right. him how, how to make it. 
Yeah, no, it just it's it's so well done. We have to talk for just a second about that light. Go on. Which, which light is that? I don't remember the light. I, th- I may there not have are, caught it. There are multiple shots in this scene where they're having this conversation. Oh, yes, the lamp. Yes, right in the way. The lamp. Yes. The lamp. Yes. Where the lamp is framing Ian Holmes's mustache. This giant lamp. It's like right in the middle of his face. And so everything he's saying is striking me as warm and loving, but he's got this thing right in front of him. Right, yeah. There's this physical barrier between the two of them. And the camera angle is at a low angle, so so Secundo is looking up with this giant blockage that has been put between the two of them. And then later on, they reverse the shot, and the lamp is now from, viewed from above, blocking off Secundo's face. And I just thought that was a lovely piece. Yes. Of right, because Pascal, has, has, he finally gets frustrated with him. He slams it down, and now it's it's blocking. Right. Yeah, it's blocking <laughs> Secundo's face. Yeah. Oh, There's something to that, and I, I don't. I confess, I, I'm not quite sure what the. What well, we're know, supposed to take away from a, it, but uh, but it's, I, I don't know that it means a yeah. lot other than just the 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 feeling it gives from the the filmmaking side, this barrier between the two of them. That I just found very evocative. Well, I think that for me at least, when I think about that sequence, what what we see in Secundo is this kind of purity of what the restaurant could be, and it's not tainted by this idea of like you know flambe and all the different things that pascal has going on but in a way it's almost like holding up a mirror to pascal but that image of what he used to be was blocked by the lamp that's how i film theoried 101 in that sequence but great call out man for sure just, it was such a weird thing and i loved it so much yeah yeah it's, it's it definitely does it I, I didn't know what you were referring to at first but yeah it, it definitely does sort of stick out because it's it's so odd to have, it's almost like the way that it's it's framed in the shot. It's almost like a huge mustache covering his mouth. It is. Yeah. Which is funny seeing on Ian Holmes because I've never seen him with a mustache like that. But I guess, to a certain degree, I was trusting his character, pretty, completely until the lamp, and then I felt there's this weird dynamic of him looking up with this barrier between the two of them. That was the the hint in my mind that I shouldn't completely trust this guy. Yeah. So anyway, at this point, as I said, uh, Pascal proposes the idea of, of a big night as a way of, of dealing with the, the financial problems that they're having. He says, I'm going to do this favor for you. Uh, he, he has Primo look at, the, at a wall full of photographs, uh, all of them autographed by people, famous people who've, who've eaten at the restaurant. And uh, he asks him, do you know who that one is? And it's, it's, it's Louis Prima. Famous jazz musician from the 1950s, uh, and he he says he's a friend of mine, uh, and he's coming to town next week or something. Um, and uh, why don't you throw a party for him, and we'll call in the newspapers and they'll do a, a story, and and this will be pub- publicity for you. You can have a big night where they you just go all out, make his huge feast for Lu- Louis Prima. Newspapers will be there. They'll do reviews of the food, and everybody will want to eat at your restaurant. So this is the way out that Secundo sees. If they throw this big night, if it's successful, if Louis Prima comes, then the restaurant will be a hit, and all their financial problems will go away. Um, and he says, "Okay, we'll do it, but we're not going to tell Primo where the idea came from, because he knows if Primo knows it came from Pascal." It's going to be tainted in his mind, 
and he's not going to want to cooperate. He's not going to go through with it, and the restaurant's going to just going to fold. The bank's going to repossess the um, the property. So they move forward with the plan, um, and in the following sequences, we see them getting ready for the big night. They're doing the shopping, they're preparing the dishes, and we see them doing all, making all sorts of uh, different preparations, making the pasta by hand. Um, I think we specifically see them pouring out the, the flour and the eggs, uh, mixing the, the pasta by hand to make garganelli, which are these like, um, they're, they're, they're sort of like uh, a penne pasta, but you make it by hand, so you've got this flat piece of dough, you cut out um, squares, and then you, you roll it over, you kind of fold it over itself and roll it over a special wooden block that makes a, a sort of a, um, a striped pattern on it, on the outside of it, so it holds the sauce or whatever. <clears throat> so we see them making this and all sorts of other things. So they're getting ready for the big night, um, and there's this really, again, I think a really meaningful scene that occurs um, <clears throat> as, uh, well, a few things, a few things happen. Um, one, Phyllis, Secundo's girlfriend, comes to help. And we see just how lovely and, and sweet this woman is, that she wants to, to help her boyfriend make the restaurant a success, so she's going to get her hands dirty in the kitchen. Um, <clears throat> And she, she wants to, to know what to do, and she receives instructions and all, all sorts of things. Um, in the meantime, Secundo has errands that he needs to run. He needs to get the liquor for the night. And this is where we get our first sort of really jarring sense of just how far Secundo has sold out, has sold his soul, really, uh, in order to make this restaurant a success, in order to, to sort of live his American dream. Um, because, again, we saw earlier in the scene with Phyllis, he's saving himself with her. He's not treating this as a casual thing. We get the sense he sees sexual intimacy as something to be reserved and something sacred, something, something special. But the very next scene, after he leaves her, he has this errand to run, he needs to get the liquor, we see him in bed with... Pascal's wife, who we've met earlier, just sort of in passing. Um, she's, uh, she's also Italian. I believe her name is Isabella. Um, we see him in bed with her. And it becomes obvious over the course of the scene that he has gone to her in the middle of his preparations, not because they're having a love affair exactly. It seems more that he has traded favors with her because she has connections to cheap liquor. Mm -hmm. And he needs the cheap liquor. So they go to bed together, and afterwards, there's this interchange conversation, and, and he keeps saying, so you're going to call the man, right? You're going to call the man, the, the, the liquor man, right now. You're going to do it right now. <laughs> so it's very obvious. Like, there's not actually, a, not actually a romantic connection between them it's it's a business thing. It's a business transaction. It was incredibly jarring. Yeah. For me, like I actually went, oh man, like when really that like happened. The guy. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it this really is the beginning of that reversal that I that I talked about, where I mean, before it's Primo, he's the idealist, and he's he's just sort of ridiculous as a character. Secundo, he's the one who's really holding everything together, and we see no, no, this guy has has really lost something of himself in uh, in coming 
to to this woman to get access to the, the sort of material things he needs to make the restaurant a success, but he, he's losing himself in the process. And, and there's something deeply rotten about this character. To use this woman in that way, at the same time that he's got this wonderful woman back at the restaurant who has just gone out of her way, cleared her schedule to, to help make his restaurant a success. It really, that you know, that idea, I want to go back to the lampshade real quick. Just that I think the more I think about that now, like pre, like it's almost like the three stages of an Italian immigrant trying to start a restaurant. Like Primo, you have the idealist, the you can't have spaghetti meatballs together. Secundo, who's kind of starting to leeway a little bit more until, into, you know, someone who's in in one, one way and in the other way. And then you have Pascal, who's just too far gone. Like it really, it's like three yeah. stages is how I look at that sequence. The more I think about it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's right, and I and, and that's why I described it sort of as midway between See, between the yes. purity of Primo sure. and and the the debauchery of of Pascal. Yes. Um, but then Secundo leaves after uh, Isabella has called the the liquor guy and, and said everything's set up. He goes to the liquor guy. He's not there yet, uh, so he has to pass the time. He ends up going and, and uh, sort of walking, sort of window shopping, looking at some Cadillacs. The Cadillac dealer um, invites him for a test drive, and they have this conversation about I love that guy. power cars and, and uh, success, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it always comes back to, well, this is this feature, and this car's got all these features, and it's you need something like this, don't you? And Next year's car, and then next year's car will be next year's car, eh? that whole thing, yes. Do, do we know the actor to play the car salesman? Because, man, he knocked it out of the park as a ski car salesman in the four minutes that he was the main. Uh, was it Charlie? Um, it wasn't It wasn't Leo, was it? It wasn't Leif Shriver or somebody else? Um, I think it was somebody else. I, I, I'm not sure. Actually. There's only like ten people in this movie. I guess yeah. it's gotta be one of those <laughs> I ten. I Leif Shriver was in this. Is that Leon Leif Shriver? His name, yeah, his, his character name was Leo, and I'm trying to remember who Leo was. Yeah, in that's Leif Shriver. Yeah, that's yeah, Leif that's, Shriver. that's, that's, that's uh, young Leif Shriver. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I, not, I would not have guessed that. Okay. Sabretooth. <laughs> Good job, man. Well, you know. So when he ends up inviting um, the salesman to the the big night. Because uh, Louis Prima is going to be there, and uh, um, eventually he, he makes his way back to the restaurant, and and there's this blow up between him and Phyllis. So because it's it's obvious that that like, he's been gone for a while. She asks him where where have you been all this time, and he can't tell her. Uh, and I, I think it's it's obvious he feels guilty at some level, um, and he's taking that on her. Uh, there's a blow up. She leaves angry, um, and in the next scene, we have Pascal coming by to sort of check in. Everything, everything coming together. Um, is everything going to be ready for for Louis Prima? And uh, in the course of the conversation, Pascal kind of lets it slip that Louis Prima is a friend of his, and Primo puts it together. You're the one. You're the yeah. one who's responsible for the big night. You're the, one, the you're responsible for for this, um, and he's upset. Um, Pascal realizes he's put his foot in his mouth, and and he apologizes. He leaves, and there's this again this great interchange between Primo uh, and his brother, um, where they're they're talking about Pascal's restaurant, and just 
how awful it is what they do over there. Um, and and um, uh, Primo, Tony Shalhoub, this is like such a great performance from Tony Shalhoub. Every performance from Tony Shalhoub is great, but this one is knocks it out of the park. Um, he, he asks, um, he asks, Secundo, do you know what they do over there every night in that restaurant? And he answers his rhetorical question, rape, the rape of cuisine. And it's just such an evocative image in the way that Tony, I can't do it like Tony Shalhoub, um, partly because I've got a cold, partly because I'm not Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> Much to everybody's chagrin. Um, very few people are. Very few. Only one, in fact, is. As far as I know, yeah. Um, but it's just this, it, this great line to describe exactly what is going on over at that restaurant. It's, it's something that's so much a betrayal of what food is supposed to be for Primo, that he has to describe it in this grotesque way. That it's, it's the rape of cuisine. It's not that, oh, they're just doing something different. They're not just giving the customers what they want. They're violating something. Something that we're going to really see later on, and, and the movie's been hinting at it throughout the course of, of the plot so far, but we're going to find out later on that in a way, Primo really sees food as something sacred. And to violate it in the commercialistic way that Pascal's restaurant does is just, it's unconscionable. And he, well, he I has think we to. got that. We got that idea early on because I have this line saved where it's like you know the, the talking about the tim, uh, the timpano and what is it and well it's this, it's a pasta see and it's with a special crust and then uh, Primo eventually gets in there what's and the inside all of the most important things in the world so you really right. get that early on like how important it is and even the sequence where the basil is clearly mm -hmm. dead like how that upsets him greatly right um, and but yeah. I, yeah. And I think it's worth talking about at this point what what is in that uh, that dish the the timpano, um, and I, I showed like the, the the camera nobody else can see it but, but you guys can see it. <laughs> uh, a timpano is a baked pasta dish that's baked in this really ordinary kind of vessel. The Italians will make this this baked dish in a wash basin. It's not something specifically made for the kitchen. It's just an old-fashioned wash basin that you first lay a, a crust, and then you put in, as Primo said, the most important things. These most important things are really simple ingredients. There's nothing really special about them. It's pasta in a tomato sauce, um, and he's made, there are different variations, actually. I've got at least two in a cup. I've got a, I've got a, a cookbook library, as I said, I'm a foodie. Um, <laughs> and I've got at least two variations of a timpano in at least two different books. So there, there are different ways of doing it. Um, but it can be, as we see in the movie, meatballs, hard-boiled eggs, cheeses. Sometimes they'll also lay out uh, layers of, of sliced ham to separate different sections of the pasta. But keep them from touching. To keep them from touching, exactly. <laughs> You're getting it, Brennan. You're getting it. The meatballs were with the it, pasta. Bill, don't um, you get it? It was okay. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, again, these are not out of the ordinary ingredients. These are ordinary things 
These are comfort foods. Most comfort important. foods. Yeah. And, and there's a reason why Italian food is often referred to as uh, a cucina povera, as a, the poor man's food. Um, because it takes simple ingredients and it, it brings them together in a way that makes something out of this world good. At a simplicity, beauty is produced. And this is something that's vastly different from what we see in Pascal's restaurant, where it's all uh, it, show. It's, it's, it's all show. It's theatrical. Yeah. He's he's lighting the the flambe, which incidentally, to my knowledge, is not really an Italian cooking technique. That's a, that's a French thing. But but the Ital- I, I've never seen that in a, an Italian recipe before, and I've studied quite a few, <laughs> um, trying to get back my Italian food that I had access to all the time when I was living in, in Rome. Um, but yeah, it's all show, and it's it's out of the ordinary ingredients. Uh, it's it's something different um, that produces, from Primo's perspective, a mediocre result uh, <clears throat> by comparison to like this this really special dish, this pasta that you have to bake, and you don't know when it's going to be done, and that's that's kind of a thing in the. Um, in the uh, in the movie that they're they're asking well when when is the timpano gonna when when dinner gonna be ready when when it's ready when the timpano is done when is that gonna be when it's done <laughs> uh, and apparently my wife who loves behind the scenes trivia um, read about this uh, read about uh, Stanley Tucci talking about this this dish which apparently was a, a thing in his family growing up um, and. <clears throat> He, uh, I guess, is married to Emily Blunt's sister. That's um, correct. Yep, that's a second yep, wife. Yep. yep. Who I think referred to it as as that Dan Timpano or some other expletive. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. it always is messing up the holiday plans. Uh, his parents would want to bring over the Timpano to serve as part of the central thing at Christmas, and um, because it's done when it's done, you can't plan. When's the meat gonna come out of it? When's the bird? What's the turkey gonna come out? It's because it's the timpano is done when it's done. <laughs> so there are a lot of a lot of uh, dried out turkeys, I guess. That uh, I mean, how often are you saying that in your house to the boys? It's done when it's done. It's done. Well, I say it quite done. a bit, but <laughs> I can see your son spending the night at somebody's house and getting chicken nuggets and fries and being like, "This is the rainbow cuisine," and not being able to enjoy it at all. <laughs> Oh no, they they're they're Philistines too. So I'm, <laughs> what do you, okay, again, hold I again, I connect with. What do you mean? Primo. They're Philistines. You're the, when I came to sorry folks. When I came to visit you guys in Spokane, your one son was punished by having the olive oil withheld from his from being able to be dipped into his bread. I mean, ah! for goodness sake, like you your kids are probably the least picky kids I've ever encountered in my life compared to other folks. Like, do you, you don't think they're picky, or you do think they're picky? Or? Oh, they're picky. They're they're really picky. But but the times that you oh sorry the times in Messenger when you told me they were picky was because you did like white fish with a dill sauce and like the one you're, the one son is like it doesn't smell good it's like yeah I get it bro trust me I'm there because my mom would do white fish in the oven and it stunk man so I, I don't know I, I compared to other kids I've encountered but the timpano is ready when it's ready that's where we we left off and so guests right, start okay. arriving in the restaurant and um, right so everybody's waiting for a few things they're waiting for the timpano. They're also waiting for Louis Prima. Um, and this is going to be something of a problem because 
the night is going on. Louis Prima is not here yet. Um, and eventually there has to be this sort of determination. All right, we're, we're, we're just going to start eating because Louis Prima isn't here and hopefully he'll come and won't miss, won't miss everything. Correct but, me if I'm wrong. They made a second timpano, right? They made for a second timpano. Yeah. Yes. And okay. yeah. yeah. So, uh, and they saved that one for Louis Prima. They're not going to cut into that one. But, um, but the party gets going and it begins in proper Italian fashion for a, a big night. They have uh, antipasto, and I think it's uh, crostini, grilled bread with various toppings on it. And we, we get a clear sense of just how good Primo's cooking is. But this really simple thing that some, somebody eats, I forget which character it is, and you see just how delicious it is from their face. Just, it's, their reaction is... is like they've just tasted something amazing for the very first time in their life, and uh, and they're they're having drinks over the over the the appetizers, um, and eventually it's time for the, the the first first course. And I mentioned before, usually you don't have more than one pasta, but on a big night you do have two. And we see them bring out this, these bowls of soup with the garganelli pasta that they've handcrafted earlier in the, in the evening. Um, and then the, the timpano comes out. There's a, a, a fish dish that comes out. There's a stuffed pig that comes out, eventually dessert. But somewhere along the yes. line, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the, the, the timeline here, um, the progression. But <clears throat> um, one of the guests who's come who was... Unexpected, at least to Primo, is the the flower, the florist who um, he has a thing for. Um, his brother went out of his way to invite her, and that was that was something that that uh, we, we see that well, Secundo does have his brother's best wishes at heart, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so he invites the the florist Anne, or, uh, Anne. Egg. Um, yeah. and. Primo is so happy to, <laughs> that she's here. Uh, he invites her into the kitchen to show her around, and he shows her how he is crafting a sauce. And again, really simple. It's it's basil, it's tomato, it's garlic, and she she also she tastes it like this is the first time she's ever tasted something that's this amazing, out yeah. of this kind of simplicity. And he says. A line here that I, again I, I have to read it um, because I think this, in a way, is the key to the whole movie. Um, he's commenting on the importance of good food because she's said as she tastes the she tastes the sauce she says oh my god and right, he says oh oh my god is right see um, now you know to eat good food is to be close to God. Uh, and then a few lines down, he's, he quotes this other um, line that he's, he's saying. It sort of explains it, although he says, I don't quite understand what it means. Um, but the knowledge of God is the bread of the angels. There's this, this kind of, of connection in Primo's mind between, in a way, access to God and really good food. That I think... Um, really speaks volumes to the way in which, and in this instance, it's not just Italians, but, but so many different cultures that I, I read about, 
really experience food mm-hmm. where and especially the time that it takes to create the food the time that it takes to eat the food that's such a different attitude from what we are used to in America where very often largely cuz like everybody's working everybody works hard um long hours and and at the end of the day you don't want to take the time to make something great you're just going to throw together a meal that will provide you with some sustenance maybe it will taste decent um and you're going to scarf it down while everybody sits at the table looking at their smartphones um or even if that's not kind of what's what's going on at least the the likelihood is that most people's meals are over in 15 minutes, 30 minutes, under an hour. Whereas a classic Italian meal, even on an ordinary night is going to last well over an hour, maybe two. Uh yeah. and and this is something that you see again in a lot of different cultures. Um but there's this this whole idea um a whole movement that that's really getting a resurgence in European countries that um are are trying to push back against sort of the commercialization and industrialization of food um and it's called the slow food movement for primo you got to take your time crafting a dish you got to take your time selecting the ingredients making sure that they're good quality even though they're simple putting them together letting them meld in a way that creates something out of the simplicity beauty and in that simplicity the beauty that arises from it is reminiscent of god and the experience of god there's something contemplative in other words about taking your time over the food and sharing it with another person as opposed to all of the glitz and the glamour and the chaos that we see in Pascal's restaurant. So like I said, I think this this is like the, the key to the whole movie takes place in that interchange in that line. Well gosh, even even that thought taking what you're saying, thinking about Secundo, it's not that he's trying to make shortcuts necessarily, right? But it's he's almost trying to fast track the restaurant to save it, right? There's a good reason for mm-hmm. it, but there's this thought that he's trying to go about it an easy way a sure. fast way that will then jettison them into the the local culture and then people will start going there and the celebrities will start going there so and there really is something to that slowing of down and that's actually that's one of our themes for the year is just trying to slow things down more in this house and bill i have to confess i've made bread the last couple of times and i i don't let the water and flour sit together for 30 minutes before i add the salt and yeast <laughs> I, i just kind of i do i'm like one minute good enough let's go but there really is something to a properly good home cooked meal taking your time to taste and flavor and uh, and and understand what it is you're consuming i i i think we'll put that in the show notes the the slow food movement i like that idea a lot it's called the the slow in italy at least it's called the slow food presidia and oh, i'll okay. i'll see if i can find something to yes. to send you about that but amazing but it's it's a great idea mhm absolutely and i will say getting back to the film just i had a feeling that i knew where it was the movie was going 
with Louis Prima showing up. I was just like, any second now, he's going to walk in the door, or the meal will be completely over, and then the whole band will show up, and it'll be this whole thing. And then, much like waiting for Guffman, Guffman never comes. Right. And we find out after a time, uh, finally, that there's this, uh, again, an interchange between... Um, um, Secundo and Isabella, and I forget the precise reason for it, um, but Secundo's upset. Isabella, or no, Isabella's upset. Secundo goes to talk to her. Somebody's upset. I think it's Secundo, actually. Isabella goes to talk to her, uh, talk to him, uh, and ends up kissing him. And they're kind of Mackin. making yeah. out Mackin for, a minute, yeah. for a minute. Do the thing that people do when, when they want Phyllis walks liquor. in. And Phyllis <laughs> walks in, sees what's going on, Secundo tries to kind of play it off, but he can't. She leaves. She's upset. Which, of course, now Secundo's upset. Isabella, I don't know if she feels guilty or, or what the motivation is, but she's had enough of this whole farce. And she reveals or forces Pascal to reveal the fact that Louis Prima isn't coming. Louis Prima was never coming. That essentially Pascal had set up this whole thing just as a way of bankrupting the restaurant. Because earlier in the, in the movie, we see Secundo going to the bank, pulling out all that they have except for $63.70-something yeah. cents um, that, that he has left in his account. And he takes out all this money to buy the flowers, to buy the ingredients to the food, all the cheap liquor, and now they've got nothing. And Pascal knows it. And he's trying to use this to bankrupt the competition and also to make it so they have no choice but to come work for him. So he, he confesses, he gives a half-hearted sorry, that's just sort of the way that the world works, and he leaves. Um, and at this point, Secundo is devastated because not only is Phyllis, who he loves, he, he said earlier in the movie, I, I want to marry you. Uh, he's lost Phyllis. He's lost his restaurant, and he doesn't know what to do. He goes out to the shore. He finds Phyllis there swimming in the ocean, um, and he tries to talk to her, and, and she leaves. She's, we get the sense that she's done. She's done with him. Um, in the meantime, Primo now knows everything that's going on. He goes out to talk to his brother. Because earlier in the, in, the, in the day, he had received a, a letter from an uncle back in Rome who's opened a restaurant and wants Primo and Secundo to come back and work in his restaurant in Rome. And Primo wants to go. But he's, he's only, we get the sense now finally, he's only ever come to America to watch over his brother, to teach his brother and help guide him um, sort of on the straight and narrow. And, and he knows he's failed. Um, but he goes to Secundo, now on, or to Secundo now on the beach to say, look, we've got this offer from Uncle Paolo. Uh, he wants us to come back to Rome. Will you go? And Secundo says no. He's not leaving. He's not leaving this place because his dream is in America. His dream is in everything that we've seen throughout the movie that he understands this is what America represents, the consumerism, the, the money, the glitz, the glamour, the big Cadillacs, all of that, that's what he wants. And Primo tells him, I've, you've learned nothing. 
I've taught you nothing. Um, and, and he punctuates this whole dialogue with this, this line, or this set of lines, uh, that again, I think sum up so much of what the movie's driving at. He says, this place, this place, this place is eating us alive. You want me to make a sacrifice for the restaurant, for, whatever, for, for their life there in America. He says, if I sacrifice my work, it dies. It's better that I die. Primo's willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the beauty, the, the contemplation, the experience of God that he finds in creating beauty out of simplicity. And he, if he gives that up, if he goes commercial, he'd, he'd rather die. Because his art, his, the beauty there would die. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the brothers have a, a fight on the beach. It's, it's actually kind of a hilarious fight. <laughs> in, spite of the, in spite of how heart, like, heart-rending it, the scene also is, it's, it's a moment of comic, uh, comic relief there. That's in the movie's credit that it, it it's always has that. The entirety of the movie right. feels so yeah. profound and so wonderfully significant while never feeling like it's going to beat you over the head. Right. Which again is, you know, my experience, like sort of classic Italian approach there. But, um, (laughs) but uh, so they separate, go their separate ways until the morning. We see Secundo makes his way back to the restaurant. Um, Their sous chef slash waiter is there. Uh, He's been asleep uh, on the counter uh, since the the previous night after the party winds up, uh, he wakes up, he asks him, are you hungry? And proceeds to make him an omelet. And eventually Primo comes in and, and uh, we get the sense that they're kind of reconciling with each other. Um, and this is where the movie ends. And it's just from start to finish, just masterfully, masterfully done. How they tell this story of these two brothers out of their element, trying to find their way, and how the story really reverses our expectations and forces us, I think, to, to sort of confront a lot of the things that we find in Secundo and a lot of the insights that I think we, we learn from Primo. I, we got to talk about that last shot I'm... a little bit, though, because I, I feel like the... Yeah, totally. One shot. One shot. One, yeah, it's one a single shot. shot. It's, what, four or five minutes long? It's a long shot. Yeah, it starts it's a, yeah, Cristiano. Sure. It's, yep. it's pretty long, yeah. But it's such a mm-hmm. beautiful both summary of the movie and and way to culminate the film without a single line of dialogue. No, I guess there is a couple. He, he like he says, "I got it" or something like that. Um, so he makes the eggs, but he I I have everything you've just said. He the last meal of the movie is made with a single ingredient, two if you count the fact that you put oil in the pan. And he, I, I'm mm-hmm. watching him and some salt. Watch and some salt. Watching him make those eggs yeah. was like I, I said before the podcast, just shy of erotic to me, and not just because of how expensive <laughs> eggs are right now. I mean, <laughs> Lord, I, I say that flippantly, but it was just it was great watching somebody cook, and those eggs looked delicious, and they there was this simple. It was simple filmmaking, to make a simple meal that was shared with three men. And the brothers reconcile in a way that is almost without, entirely without words. And I just thought it was such a beautiful, poignant way to punctuate this film. It, and well, and too, you get the yeah. sense that, that it's kind of a moment of redemption as of a sorts for, for 
for Secundo because yeah. you know wait, he, he's he's going back to his roots. Everything's collapsed. Everything's falling apart around him, and he goes back. And his response is to do what his brother had taught him all along to make something beautiful out of simplicity. Some eggs, some and, well, and some bread, and three mints yeah. yeah. together. And two things about that too, and it was when you said Brendan, no words. I didn't realize this until later, but Cristiano, who's played by Mark Anthony, who's a um, a Spanish kind of pop star and has a number of hits, doesn't say a one word the entire mm-hmm. film. Not a single word. So there's no words for him in that moment. But the thing I love about that ending sequence was the reversal of it all, because that's the one thing we never saw Secundo do was make something mm-hmm. for his brother. It was always his brother doing the one, all the cooking. So I really like that that kind of beautiful reversal that, you know, it's bittersweet. Like they're probably going back home at the end of this. They're not going to open a McDonald's or an Olive Garden. That's just not going to happen. doesn't make sense that way. But to what you were saying, Bill, earlier, when Loretta liking behind-the-scenes stuff, this movie was written out of frustration. I Stanley Tucci that. was – on this movie, jury duty, jury duty, he was very embarrassed by it. So do I, right? Um, and he was that movie. So when I mentioned that theme that Pascal says, you know, you do what they want first, and then you could do a little bit of what you want. That was Tucci doing that, where he realized his entire career, he's been doing what everybody else wants. Finally, he's going to do something for himself, and he does this movie, which did pretty well with the kind of the independent awards, um, the awards season. I think it did well at Sundance, and then won a, a jury prize at a number of different things. So. Out of that frustration came this beautiful piece, which again, just a marvelous film, incredibly delightful Dang, altogether. Perfect movie, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, it's yeah, it was missing the fettuccine alfredo. I, <laughs> I'm not a foodie like you guys. In fact, you're a nudie. That's it's similar, but it's different. We'll we'll explore that later. A never nude. Yes, sorry, yes, sorry. Right. <laughs> I mean, so we were all in a house. Or maybe not explore together. that later. I'd prefer not explore that later. <laughs> Off air. At you best. do you. Um, <laughs> but we were all in a household together, household fraternity, whatever. Just, let's stick with that. That's easier. Um, and you guys made dinner for each other every Sunday night, and that was really intimidating to me because I was never taught how to cook. And that was one of the reasons I held off so long from joining you guys is because it scared me to figure out that I had to cook for you guys every four or five Sundays. I'm glad. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not much of a cook. But... (laughs) (sighs) It's just... I I love everything you said about the simplicity and the beauty of the food because I feel like as a piece of art, the film mirrored that so, so beautifully. Just from every aspect of it. The dialogue, the, 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 the... the, the, the filmmaking itself was very simple and very beautiful, and it's just I I'm over the moon on this movie. I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, absolutely. Most excellent choice, Doctor Julius. Most excellent choice. As, as so, I said, it, it's it's one of my favorites. It's, it's in the. I've never done a ranking, so I, this is sort of off the cuff, but I I probably say in top ten. I don't uh, it's do. Do a ranking. It's I've fun. I've never done a ranking either. <laughs> We've talked about doing that sometime. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, That's that's a that was a most delicious gush. Anything else from either of you that you want to say haven't said yet? Anything? Have, you, do you, have you, either of you heard Louis Prima before? Is he a real person? He's a real person. It was, it's a joke. It's sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's good. There's no Roy so I get that, but I... <laughs> well, all right. This was... Most delightful indeed. Um, so, Bill, pick a number between uh, one and one. 
going to have to go with uh, one. Could you say something nice about American meatloaf with the glazed ketchup and kind of baked onto it, kind of like on the top there? Oh, we've never done to say something nice about anything other than movies, Brendan. Look at this. Innovation. There is a healthy amount of protein it's true. in that dish. There's a lot of protein in that dish. Uh, and you and know what? I also hate meatloaf. <laughs> and it will fill you up. Okay. After and all this conversation. If you have if you have the stomach to actually eat it. Three guys here, two of them foodies, and then there's me. And I kind of like meatloaf. American meatloaf? I'm okay with that. I have once had Kobe beef meatloaf, and that was acceptable and delightful. <laughs> and if I had to say something nice about some, if I had to say something, something nice about American meatloaf, it would be ketchup's good. So, some of the best beef in the world makes this meal fine. <laughs> pa- passable. All right, all right. Aggressively fine. Aggressively <laughs> fine. That's right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> the best phrase. Uh, this I think is one of the lower number list here bill pick a number between one and 264 wow. that's impressive wow. um Isn't that, that low it, it, that is it low, shows yeah. the film in a way that is very positive too it's, it seemed like a family oh, it seems so high <laughs> i mean it again, really it's was simpli- it's the simplicity and beauty thing that that's sort of imbued throughout the movie and it's it, it's production expresses that too um okay so one and 200 and well i'm just gonna say 64 183 183. That is Gary de Michel, who is a musician. Or the music. The, the man who did the music. Uh, Gary de Michel is an American composer, musician, pianist, drummer, percussionist, a multi instrumentalist, and vocalist. My goodness. Um, this is delightful. He has composed. Too. Yeah. I'm tr- oh, man. He did The Secret Life of Dentists. He did the music in that. Uh, Hamlet, one of the Hamlet productions, a TV movie version of that. And a movie called Camp Hell. <laughs> what the hell? Camp Hell. This is the first Selection. movie he ever did, and Camp Hell was 2010, so he worked for 14 years. Hmm. Let me. Oh, he has a website, .net. Classic. And the first thing on there is the original motion picture soundtrack for Big Night. Well, thanks for what you did, man. Wow, I need a, a jingle. Yeah, Gary, fantastic. I, I see there's a contact site. Ooh, maybe we'll get you mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, Gary, thank you for all the excellent music, good sir. Um, we just we all love good soundtracks, man, and this definitely will be on the list. So, most excellent choice. Finally, Bill, what are you consuming lately? And for the first time, you, if you are consuming an amazing dish, which you've been messaging me about all day, you really should mention it. But in addition to that, uh, music, TV, comics, books, I know that you're working on a book. Tell us all what you're consuming and what you're producing at this time. Definitely. Okay, so um, my uh, my wife and I, my wife has been on Christmas break for the last few weeks, which meant that we have been watching a lot of more stuff than we usually would. Um, so we have gotten up to date with a uh, ongoing show called uh, Leverage Redemption, which is a spinoff of a show called Leverage um, that was, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of USA? Like, when, when, it, uh, when it ran, but not, not all that long ago. It was a great show. It's like pr- sort of procedural. You've got your, um, your thieves with a heart of gold who come together in order to help people uh, who were being taken advantage by other people. Um, 
And so it's a reboot of that show, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, we also watched, it, just a, it was a one-season run of a show called um, Almost Paradise, which stars one of the actors from um, Leverage Redemption, which I, I thought was a lot of fun because it's about this ex-DEA agent who he, he retires, he's got a heart condition, um, and he retires in, of all places, the city of Cebu, Philippines, which I had never heard of before until uh, the um, fall before COVID. So 2019, I submitted a, um, pr a conference proposal to do a presentation at this conference that was going to be hosted in Cebu, Philippines. And I went wow. there um, January of 2020, and uh, then COVID hit, and that was the last place that I had been able to go to prior to lockdown so that really stuck out and it was kind of fun to see it in uh in film um in a sort of a procedural kind of cop drama slash comedy context so that was that was fun um we we've also watched a few pretty good movies um blanking on most of them right now but we just watched um just watched one that was really great and i can't remember what it was <laughs> but i'll think about it for a while. it'll come back to me but um yeah yeah I wanna... but i i also have been uh I, I got a an audible account um for as a christmas present last christmas um and listening to books on that got me pretty behind on the podcasts that i typically used to listen to so i have been binging for a while <laughs> um specifically i i just got done binging on cinema gush and i am now officially up to date well after being a little so over sorry. a year behind <laughs> and i have to say that was a blast because i You're a good man. love Appreciate movies and that. and miss hanging out with you guys um mm. but also because through brendan and one of your one of my consuming these days uh comments number of episodes back uh, I got on to uh, Audible and downloaded a copy of uh, Richard Iowati ah! Iowati on top and I have to say really that book held up to your recommendation I'm so glad you listened <laughs> to one that's amazing does he I, I just finished it earlier this morning as I was uh, was making does breakfast he and he reads oh, it oh that sounds oh, so you were, I, you were no, reading, I, I reading read it. it I was listening to it and and he 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 reads it and oh, he intersperses commentary about the book as he's reading it, the which is really just so it the, was great. He has a lot of footnotes. He has a lot of comedy held in the footnotes. He reads the footnotes, but he also makes commentary on the fact that he's reading this book and clarifying things that you listening to the book you, you wouldn't get. Um, <laughs> From if you were just if you if you weren't reading it with a physical so copy, did, so it, it's did great. Did reading it make you want to watch the movie? It kind of did. I watched the movie. It's a treat after reading the book. It's not good, but man. <laughs> it's fun to watch after you. I'm, that pleases me greatly. I'm reading another one of his books right now. It's kind of one of my like. Uh, I'll read something more meaty, and then I read a chapter of this where it's uh, he's writing. He wrote the book. I can't think of the name of this one. He wrote the book as a meathead from from L.A. talking about film, 
and then he's constantly putting footnotes criticizing his own book that he is writing about film and it's very very entertaining not not as good as this one but but very entertaining the book that no one wanted to read no, is that it uh, shoot. the grip, grip of film, of film? Grip of film. Yep. okay yeah right on Wonderful. Uh, and, and then ingesting some good things. Nick Nick asked me to, to talk about the, the things that I have been literally consuming recently, mm-hmm. uh, the food Please, things. Yes. So Christmas, I, I always ask for cookbooks, which is why I have such a large cookbook collection that takes up a whole bookcase. Um, but uh, I, I got four new cookbooks uh, at Christmas this year. One is a 1,000 Spanish recipes. Um Another is a Portuguese cookbook. Um, another is a Scottish baking cookbook, and the other one is a Tibetan cookbook. Wow! All things. Nice. Um, but uh, earlier today, I was messaging Nick with pictures of of the bread that I baked out of the Portuguese book, and it has become my this is my new favorite bread um, because it is it, it has egg white baked into the the dough, which gives it this absolutely gorgeous dark hued crust and this pure white interior that is just melting your mouth oh, delicious that, that good. i had to hold myself back from eating <laughs> far more slices of that than i should this that evening when I sliced into it we'll make that the thumbnail of the episode <laughs> oh Beautiful, man. Uh, Brennan, in addition to that book, what else are you consuming these uh, days? So I got a lot of books for Christmas. So I finished the Everything Everywhere All at Once book the other day. It was the art, art, poetry, physics book. It was wonderful. I mean, a lot of it... I mean, it's filled with art that I thought was ugly. And physics that I, I was very far from proven. And... Uh, uh, poetry that varied in quality and it was such a blast to read from beginning to end even when i thought the art itself was meh it was so great to have it there in this it felt multiverse in a book um i i was still reading my my book about news and then i got uh i started shura's journey which is a miyazaki manga from the 80s that was first time translated into english i'm enjoying that um yeah we uh I went. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Are you familiar with the the game by Justin Rowland, High on Life? I have seen okay, clips. Do you know of there's it, yes. four movies, entire real movies inside the game? Okay. No. There is Tammy and the T Rex. There's Blood Harvest. There's Vampire Hookers, and there's Demon Wind. And in the okay. game, you can go to a movie theater and sit in the theater, and the three guys from um, shoot. Like in YouTube movie reviewers, they hate everything. RL, uh, Red Letter Media. Media. Yep, Red Letter. The three Are guys from Red really? Letter Media, basically uh, Mystery Science Theater, the entirety of Demon Wind, and so I did that with a buddy last night. <laughs> Had a great time. Oh, it's a bad movie. Sounds delightful. Yeah, we started uh, Koala Man <laughs> on Hulu last night. That was fun. It's good Australian <laughs> adult animation. You'll you'd enjoy it. You should give it a shot. That's uh, oh my that's gosh. Kind of doing. I'm gonna go see Megan next week. Yeah, kill it, Megan. Mega? Killer doll. It's getting great. Oh, reviews. Megan. Oh, yeah. I thought you were short forming like Mega Godzilla or something. I'm like, man, I'm not cool like you. How about you? you? What do you? Yeah. What do you? What do you put in that brain of yours? 
Um, so well, somebody recommended Abbott Elementary to us, which we have started, and uh, pretty good so far. Pretty good so far. Um, I've been playing a lot of Tony Hawk Pro Skater, man. It's just the mm. nostalgia. Um, addicted to nostalgia this year. Um, I've been playing uh, Hollow Knight. What a great game! This is my second playthrough. It's a great. Game. What a great game! Fantastic. I'm reading a number of very strange books. One is called The Book of Goose. Book of Goose. Tell me about the Book of Goose. It's a very. It's it's a. You have these two girls in France who are kind of poor and they're just friends. The one is like really strange and outgoing and has a weird way of life. And the other one is just you, the main character, Bella Swan from Twilight, as it were. And you're just kind of going through life with this girl, and she is starts telling the girl, "Hey, you should you we should be an author. Like I'll just tell you the stories. You just write them down, and then we'll sell them as books." Well, they start doing that, and then um, the book that the the one the one book that they write together, which again the main character is literally just writing down whatever her friend says, becomes this international phenomena. And then that girl, um, not the friend who's telling all the stories, they're like, "No, no," she's like, "You should be the author. I won't even be any part of this. It's just you who's the author." And the girl's like, "Well, I don't want to be an author." She's like, "Well, no, it'll just be a funny joke to everybody, and then we can just stop whenever we want." Well, then it becomes this international best-selling hit, and then everyone's interested in it, and they write a second book together that's really crazy and then they get separated um the one girl's like sent to this elite private school because she has all this potential because she's a writer but really she hasn't written anything before and um it's very strange but i'm enjoying it it was recommended from um gosh i think a tiktoker who was like this is the best book of 2022 and so i've been enjoying that one um i started the remains of the day by kazuo ishigiro which is uh really fascinating it's based well there's a movie based off the book that did really well at the oscars in the early 90s with anthony hopkins as the main guy and what the book does insanely well is it's like the private diary of a butler as he has like a little um he has a little vacation and he writes about his life it's so well done like literally learning about jeeves and like everything that he upholds and his standard as a butler I've, i've read one of his books before the remains okay. of the day. He's a great author. So, I, I read Never Let Me Go, and Lauren mm-hmm. did Artist of the Floating World. Remains of the day. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and then uh, for the last book I'm reading right now, it's Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson. It's the third book in the Way of Kings um, Chronicle. I think it's gonna be ten books or something. It's the third one there, and it's 55 hours long, Bill. So if you need a really long book, literally anything by Brandon Sanderson, it's good, high epic fantasy. Very long, very well done. I love fantasy, um, but I highly don't recommend that for your audible to, fan- to read fantasy these days. They're just this third book of ten, <laughs> six thousand pages. <laughs> no, don't be this way. Still um, bitter about Game of Thrones. No, it's not over. It's not over I'm yet. I'm bitter, and I only read the first book. Huh. Well, either way, that's fine. That's all well and good. That's um, it's gotta be. And fine. then. Oh my gosh, I just watched the movie. What was that movie? The Big Night. No, it was something oh, else. Oh, that's a good movie. You <laughs> should gush about that sometime. I've heard good things. It's about food, um, right? uh, Can't think of what it was. There was something in the way. Something. Mm-hmm. It was on HBO Max. What was it? Oh, it'll come to me way later. But um, that's pretty much everything I've been enjoying these last couple of days. I, uh... Made a 2023 music playlist, which is full of lots of stuff we used to listen to in college and some new stuff in there. And I'm just trying to make a point this year to listen I to more music because I feel like makes I don't you happy. I'm just right? in such a rush with everything. 
It does. It does. And I was telling Bill earlier, like, the song Falls on Me by Fuel is, like, very much a theme for the month. And it's just a darn good song. Fuel's got a lot of good songs. But I will stop ranting about that. Um, gentlemen, this was excellent. Bill, thank you as always for coming on the show. My um, pleasure. Come back and do yes, Coco indeed. sometime. I will. <laughs> I will. <Or> you liar. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, thank everybody for listening in as always, and we will see you in the next one. Bye.